Lord Jesus, you are the word of life. Please speak your life through me and into all of our hearts. Help us to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. C.S. Lewis said, There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And those to whom God says, Thy will be done. All those that are in hell choose it. In the end, it is because it is exactly because of who God is, which is love, it is because of how much he loves us that he will, at the very end of all things, finally give us exactly what we want. It's not the end yet, and so today I'm not getting exactly what I want, which is to not have to preach about hell. <laughs> <laughs> really don't want to talk about this. I've kind of been trying to avoid it for a while, but it's really hard to do with the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the person in the Bible that talks more about hell than anybody else, and Matthew records a whole lot of it. And we've been seeing already this kind of back and forth. There are kingdom people, and there are empire people, and there's, there's two. There's some kind of split. The kingdom of heaven is the reality, and it is the reality in which God is king, and we are in his image, and so we have his, um, his likeness in us, and we can do a lot of things, and in connection with him when he is our king, we have authority, but God is king. Empire is actually an illusion, but most of us start out there, and we... We all start out there, actually. And in Empire, each of us thinks we're king, or we're trying to be king. And we spend our whole lives trying to be king. And actually, we're enslaved to ourselves, to our desires, to our obsessions, to our ideas, to everything about us. We're enslaved to it. The teaching of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, is that by the final judgment, human beings will have become, at their core, each human being at their core, will become fully a citizen of one reality or the other, of kingdom or of empire. And by that time, nobody will be able to choose differently. Their, their decision will have been set. It is really connected to the teaching that we looked at two weeks ago. Um, it's the same, this is part of this same block of teaching. Jesus was in the house and he went out of the house and he got on the boat and then he, later in this chapter, he goes back into the house. But he's still teaching about this kingdom versus empire thing. And he talked at the beginning of this about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and we talked about how that sin, even though Jesus describes it as unforgivable, is a sin of trajectory. If you keep denying the work of the Holy Spirit around you and calling it evil and putting yourself up in, in opposition to what the Holy Spirit is doing, then that's unforgivable because it's through the Holy Spirit that we receive forgiveness. So... If you keep putting the Holy Spirit off, you can't receive forgiveness. This is, all of these parables are kind of further explanations of that idea. So, we are actually going to start today 
by looking at the summary of this section, which is what we just read in the responsive reading. Jesus said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Jesus is saying this, and um, he maybe wasn't specifically talking about Matthew, but a lot of people believe that Matthew is kind of identifying himself with this person that Jesus is describing who has who's a disciple in the kingdom of heaven and has this spiritual house and that's full of treasure. There's old treasure and there's new treasure, and he's bringing it out to present it to people. As we remember, Matthew was a servant of empire. There wasn't even a question about it. He was literally a servant of the Roman Empire when he was a tax collector, and most likely he was a servant of the Roman Empire because he was self-serving. He could make a lot of money as a tax collector. He didn't really care doing that, put him at odds with his own people, the Jews, and so clearly he was putting himself first. He was definitely the opposite of a teacher of the law, which is what Jesus is describing in this saying at the end of the passage. But even though Matthew lived the first part of his life in direct opposition to God and God's people and the values of the kingdom, he clearly knew the law of Moses very well. Um, I've, I've mentioned the Chosen TV series a few times. This, this is one place where I disagree with their interpretation. They have Matthew doesn't know the law at all, um, but and so he's learning it as he follows Jesus. But I think Matthew really knew the law and the prophets, the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. I think he knew it very well, and he was still serving empire. But once he met Jesus... All that head knowledge fell into place, and his very nature was transformed. The reason I think he knew the law well is because he's constantly referencing it in his gospel. He's constantly bringing it up. Now, he himself, a former traitor to the people of God, can bring out of his storeroom what he used to know in his head, but which is now part of his life, both the knowledge of the law and the prophets that he and his people already have, and the true and living interpretation of what he is seeing and hearing in the life of Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior. And we need to keep this in mind as we look at these parables that we're looking at today. The parables that we have read today, that Paul read and that we read in our responsive reading, are stories that Jesus told. These are the words of Jesus, but only Matthew shares these particular parables with us. The other gospel writers share the parable of, of the, sowers, the sower that we looked at last week, and they talk about the mustard seed and the yeast, which is in this chapter, but we didn't actually read that today. Um, but only Matthew shares the ones that we're going to look at today. And so based on this conclusion of Jesus that he records about the old treasures and the new treasures, we can see that Matthew believes that in sharing these stories, Jesus, and now he, is showing a unique, unexpected way that Jesus' teaching, the new treasures, interprets and fulfills the law and the prophets, the old treasures. Matthew believes that Jesus and he are teaching something 
new. So we're going to need to keep that in our minds because I think it's really easy to read these and assume that we 100% know what they mean. Um, we might also want to just note, Matthew once again is doing something intentionally literary here. He has written this after the parable of the sower. He has written this in a pattern. So he's, or he's recorded these stories of Jesus in a pattern. So he tells, a par he records a parable of two types of people and judgment, the wheat, the weeds, and the harvest. Then he records two really short parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like. Then he explains the first parable. Then he records two more parables about the kingdom. And then another two people types and judgment parable. So it's like people, kingdom, kingdom, explanation, kingdom, kingdom, people. It's like an X. All, that means that all of these things connect to each other and we should keep all of them in our heads as we're listening to or reading the other ones. So the first parable in this block, and I think the one that's probably the most challenging and maybe the most troubling is the one of the wheat and the weeds. And it's a basic farming parable again like last week's. Um, it's maybe a little more exciting. Last week, the sower just threw a bunch of seeds around and plants grew or didn't. Um, this week, there's a farmer, and he obviously is a pretty wealthy farmer because he has servants, and this whole field gets planted with good wheat seed, and then at night, while everybody's asleep, somebody who clearly hates this guy goes into this field of good wheat and throws in a whole bunch of seeds that are weeds. And the servants of the farmer say, well, you know, everything starts to sprout and they realize there are weeds in there. And they say, oh, how about if we go in there and pull those out for you? And the farmer says, no, no, just leave it there until the harvest and we'll deal with it then. And so at the harvest time, they gather everything up. They separate the wheat and the weeds and the weeds get stored in the barn and the wheat gets burned up or the weeds get burned up. Wheat gets in the barn, weeds get burned up. I don't know what I just said. <laughs> so, it's important when we read the parables of Jesus. Sometimes he doesn't give us a, a key or a translation of his little code in the parable. But when he does, we need to pay attention to what it says. Because last week, we looked at the parable of the sower. And the different types of ground were the people, and the seeds was the word of God. But this week, or which is actually the next story, <laughs> all of the metaphors mean different things. And so when Jesus says, this is what it is, we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying it is, and not what we think it is, or what not what it was in the parable before. So, Jesus basically spells this out. The sower, or the farmer in this story, this story, today's story, is the Son of Man, which is Jesus. And the field is not people this time. The field is the world. And the good seed is not the word. It's people. <laughs> the good seed is the people of the kingdom. And the weeds are people of the evil one or people of empire. The enemy is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the harvesters are angels. So, and then this, what happens in the story is the final separation between kingdom and empire. There are, 
many things to note about this, but here's a couple. The first thing to notice is the separation, like Barb was sharing with us, the separation between kingdom and empire people is not our job. We don't have to, we do, thank God, we do not have the responsibility of figuring out who's a wheat and who's a weed. My brother, we were talking about this this week, and because, you guys, this story was stressing me out. Um, so, so I've been talking to everybody about it. My brother says, everybody knows there are bad people and good people. This seems sort of obvious, um, and this, I think, we might say is part of the old treasure of this parable that Jesus is telling. Everybody knows this. Literally everybody, even people who think they don't believe in bad people and good people, there are groups of people that we prefer not to be associated with, not to know, not to be, whatever. So if you think about it in our current political climate, liberal people pretty much think conservatives are bad. And let's be honest, conservatives pretty much think liberals are bad. And um, you might have, and Republicans think Democrats are bad. Democrats think Republicans are bad. And, and there's all kinds of groupings. Um, this is true, though, not just in Christianity or not just in the Western world. If you think about other world religions, there's always this idea that in the end, hopefully good is going to win out and evil is going to be punished or destroyed or both. Um, if you think about there are cultures in the East where reincarnation is the, the idea, this is still an idea that's in play because if you don't do a good job in your life, you're going to have to come back, and you might come back something worse. So this idea of good versus evil is across the board. The only places where it doesn't really show up is in those systems of thought where you just believe that nothing happens after you die. And that's a minority view. Um, universalism, as it's understood now in modern times, is pretty new. But that is not the new treasure that's part of this parable. The new treasure, some of the new treasure in this parable is that it's not our job to sort out who's, who is who. This is the other thing about all of these systems of belief, including Matthew's own context, which is the, the Jewish idea, but also we have to be careful of this in our Christian context too. That, that somehow it's our job to figure out who are the good people and who are the bad people. It's not our job. The wheat doesn't get to pull out the weeds. Our job is just to be the wheat. Be the wheat. Or thy will be done, less my will be done. Verse 41, here's another thing to pay attention to. Verse 41, Jesus says, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will lead out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And then when you tack on the parable of the net near the end of this, there's a net, it gets full of fish, and the fish are separated, the edible fish from the non-edible fish. We don't know what makes them good or bad. Jesus doesn't give us any details. There are some bad ones and some good ones. Both the weeds and the fish that are, for whatever reason, bad, are burned up. Jesus himself describes weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a pleasant idea. And I think most of us who have any kind of compassion 
aren't really comfortable with this idea. We don't want to know that other people suffer, even when we are aware that there are people that we think are bad or that we just don't like very much. This sounds bad, but we can't gloss over it because Jesus talks about it and he doesn't, he doesn't lighten it up. At some point, harvest is going to come. At some point, the net is going to get full. At some point, what C.S. Lewis describes is what occurs. Thy will be done. And T. Wright says, There are certainly caricatures of God and his judgment, which we should avoid like the plague. God is not a sadistic monster who would happily consign most of his beloved image-bearing creatures to eternal fire. But there are also equal and opposite caricatures we should be aware of. God is not an indulgent grandparent determined to spoil the youngsters rotten by, give, by letting them do whatever they like and still giving them sweets at the end of the day. We must refuse the second just as firmly as the first. And here's the third thing to notice about this parable, and this is harder to see. The separation between the wheat and the weeds is for the good of the kingdom, and it's actually an expression of God's love. The, the servants, um, who Jesus says are angels, are to leave the weeds, let them remain, so that the wheat doesn't get pulled out too soon, either because you can't tell which is which, or because the roots are really intertwined. Or the people let the nets fill up with fish and then sort it out. They don't keep checking and then throwing out the bad ones and then accidentally catching them again and accidentally losing some of the good ones. They just let the net fill up and then they sort it out. And the other thing about this verse to notice is that this... The weeds, or the bad fish, are getting removed from the kingdom. In the end, in this, in this life, the kingdom and the empire are all mixed up together. But in the end, if there is any of that left in the kingdom, it's not the kingdom anymore. And so what is being removed... Jesus says the weed seeds are the evil people, but then he expands it a little bit and he says the weeds that are removed are both the things that cause people to sin and the perpetrators of sin, those who do evil. So kingdom people can no longer be tempted if the things that cause us to sin are removed. And kingdom people can no longer be harmed if the people who are totally invested in their sin are removed. <clears throat> so this parable, or this group of parables, invites a lot of questions. They're not very comfortable questions. Questions like, does God not actually love everybody? When I was in seminary, I had to read a book in which the author believed that God does not love everybody. And it was such an appalling read. The only reason I read it was because I had to. <laughs> And I got angrier and angrier the longer I read it. And finally, when I was done, actually, I don't think I threw it because I think it was on my Kindle. I didn't want to break the device. But I was furious at this book. And I had some strong words to say to my professor about it. I think that is incorrect. I believe that God loves everybody. Jesus died for everybody. But that's a question that this parable invites. 
question. Is this about predestination? Jesus quotes at the beginning, before he even tells this story, the disciples say, why do you tell parables? And Jesus says, because I'm doing what is talked about in Isaiah, where I'm going to teach in a way that the people who already understand are going to understand, and the people who don't already understand aren't going to understand, because if they did, I would turn and forgive them. Does God not want to forgive us? Does God not want people to turn to him? Does God not want people to be forgiven? Does he not actually want to forgive everybody? The parable doesn't really answer these questions, but I do believe that it hints at some things. But it's but we have to sit with the discomfort of the questions. Weeds are weeds, and wheat is wheat, right? Those things don't change, do they? It's uncomfortable. I've realized recently that there's enough Jesus to offend everybody. <laughs> Even me. The key, I think, to the parables, the people judgment parables, are the kingdom parables. Especially the last two. N.T. Wright again says, These two little parables cut right across the idea, fashionable in the ancient world as well as the modern one, that the different religions and the experiences they offer are like a set of pearls which you could collect. There is only one great pearl. There is only one hoard of treasure, and everything else is as nothing beside it. These two final parables show us a person encountering God's kingdom, God's will be done, evaluating it, and making a choice about it. And in both cases, the choice that is made is, this is worth everything. I will give up everything that I had up to this point, literally everything, my whole identity. I will give it up just so I can get this kingdom. So are, are these parables about predestination or free will? Yes. I think that the parables say some things about both. I don't know that they're really about them. I think they draw, they bring up some questions. This is probably a bigger conversation that we could, than we could really have a sermon about today. But I think it's clear that if we see the kingdom parables as the key to the people judgment parables, we have to say that both God's will and God's decision and God's foreknowledge and our own free ability to choose are in play. Matthew sold everything he had, probably literally, for this treasure in the field. I suspect that's why he tells us these two kingdom parables that Jesus told and the other gospel writers don't. They hit close to home. He actually, literally did this. And now his home is not whatever home he had built and set up for himself with his tax money, but his soul. And it is filled with kingdom treasure, both new and old, which he is bringing out of his storehouse into this book to share, first with his Jewish compatriots, who he hopes will be miraculously transformed, into wheat, like he was, and with us, for whom he hopes the same thing. 
One day there will be people for whom it has become impossible to see what the kingdom is worth, but Matthew knows that today is not that day. Something else that we need to notice about the parable of the wheat and the weed story is that it's a little bit strange. Do you remember um, last week we noted that the parable of the sower just sounds like this boring story, except until you notice how bizarre it is that the sower is just throwing seed, which at the time could have been costly, everywhere, the path and the thorny places and the rocky places and the good field, he's just throwing it everywhere. Paul and I were talking about this last week, and Paul said, it just shows how God just will give everybody the slightest little chance if there's any possibility that something's going to sprout out of there. He's going to throw it there so that that can happen. Because that's how God loves. I think there's something else surprising in this parable, too. And we can tell it's surprising because of what the angels or the servants do. They go to the farmer, they say, hey, you have an enemy. The enemy sowed weeds in here. Let us pull them out. And the farmer says, no, no, don't do that. Okay, so yesterday, <laughs> if you were on Facebook, you may have seen this, I pulled up a whole lot of garlic that we had planted last fall. A lot of garlic. By the way, don't do your laundry in the same space as you're drying your garlic. <laughs> Little tip. Um, anyway, that's another story. The garlic we planted last fall, and it came up in the spring, and it was doing great, and it was nice and healthy, but we happen to have this soil in which there is a whole lot of violets. Now, violets are really nice, um, but... They are, surprisingly, super invasive. And along with the violets came some other weeds that are not so nice. There is this stuff called wild mustard, which you would think you could eat, and you can, except that no animals will eat it. It's very invasive, and it sucks the nutrients out of the soil, and it's sort of poisonous. It's related to mustard, but it's sort of poisonous. That grows in there. And then there's all these other weeds. I don't know what they are, but they get in. And so we didn't do anything about weeding our garlic. Because one day earlier, Paul tried to pull out a violet, and a little garlic that wasn't ready to come out came out with it. And so, and there's so many violets and so many other weeds that we just decided, you know what, we're going to wait until it's time to harvest. But, and it worked got a big harvest. Some of the garlic was not so happy though. It was all like crushed down and tiny and but it was still garlic. I think this gets at another question that's kind of on the side of this parable but that that's related which is when we ask we're here and I don't know how many times I've said this and I think some of you have said this too Jesus, will you please come back? This place is a mess. Can you just fix all this? Please fix it. Why doesn't God just fix everything? Why does God allow evil to happen? I think the question is, we have chosen a broken world. We have chosen a world that's upside down. And so, in that context, God will always choose, because God loves, 
what will do the least damage to the people of the kingdom, and what will give the greatest opportunity for weeds miraculously to turn into wheat. Now, with my little analogy, there's no possible way that my violets were going to turn into garlic. That wasn't going to happen. That doesn't happen in, in the real world, which is an illusion, <laughs> sort of. Um, but it was, even though not all my garlic did great, overall it was for the benefit of the garlic for me to leave those weeds in there until I was ready to pull everything out. In God's kingdom, though, weeds can turn into wheat. Why not? God can do everything, and it's God's kingdom. And why would Jesus tell these stories if he didn't know that some people, like Matthew, were going to finally get it? The old treasure in this story, or these stories, is there is good versus evil. Evil will be judged. This is actually a treasure. It is a blessing to know that one day we will no longer have to worry about either being tempted or suffering harm. We will not have to worry about it. Praise God. That is a treasure and a blessing, and it can only happen when those things are removed from the kingdom. It is an expression of God's love to us. The new treasure, though, is it's not set in stone yet. Our destiny is not based on our birth identity. This is really important. In Matthew's time, the Jews figured their destiny was set because they were Jews. They were God's chosen people. And Matthew isn't saying they're not going to be saved, but he is saying you can't, that's not what it's about. It's not what you're born into. I have heard numerous people say, well, I was born a Christian, or so that's what I am. Or I was born a Muslim, so that's what I am. Or I, well, we didn't, we didn't do anything in my family. We, we were not religious, so that's what I am. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It's not based on what we were born. It's not based on the fact that all of us were born weeds. In the kingdom of God or the farm of God, weeds can miraculously turn into wheat. God is waiting until the harvest to sort us out. Out of love for both the wheat and the weeds. Preserving the wheat and transforming the weeds. The new treasure out of the old. The old is that kind of disturbing quote from Isaiah that Jesus quotes. And the verse, here's where the, the hint is. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Maybe that doesn't mean what it seems exactly. Maybe it doesn't mean God doesn't actually want people to do that. Maybe it means they can. And if they turn and repent, God will heal them. This is what God does when we turn and repent. God is God of the impossible. Jesus came, he tells us in John, not to condemn the world, but to save it. It is true that not everyone will see, hear, and understand the kingdom, but those who do, God will heal. God will forgive. God will bring into his barn. The rest of the C.S. Lewis quote that I started this message with 
says, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy, which is Lewis's code word for the kingdom of heaven, will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is open. The farmer leaves the weeds in the field for the sake of his kingdom people, but also because in this farmer's field, sometimes the weeds get transformed into wheat. It happened to Matthew. It happened to me. It's happened to some of you too. And this new treasure is what we're celebrating today. Let's pray and then we'll celebrate our Lord's sacrifice for us to make us wheat. Lord Jesus, thank you for your words, even when they're hard, um, even when sometimes the truth hurts. We are grateful that you came not to condemn the world, but to save us, to give us every chance to hear even your confusing sayings um, so that we can be transformed by your spirit. We want to say yes to your spirit, and we thank you for the sacrifice that you paid so that we could become wheat like you, bread of life. Amen.